short, uh, thank you for coming tonight. Uh, my name is Mickey Golar. I'm with the Animal Law Committee. I used to be a chair of the Animal Law Committee, but that's several years ago. Um, this is actually a, a program that's co-sponsored tonight with the Environmental Law Committee as well. So um, hopefully both committees are well represented tonight. And I want to thank the folks who work on this program, and, including particularly um, uh, Sage Sandy from the Animal Law Committee, who did really took the laboring more here. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to introduce uh, the panelists tonight, and I'm going to turn the program over to our moderator, uh, Professor Randall Abate, who's going to then uh, you know, take you through the program and, and actually uh, handle the Q&A. And at the very end, we'll turn it over as well to the Q&A period for the audience. So there'll be a Q&A that, that he's going to direct, and you can just hold your own questions until the end, and we'll have a separate time period set aside for the audience. So let me just start in. Um, uh, obviously, you know about the ESA. It's a 1973 statute, so it's been with us for almost 50 years, and it's, uh, of course, a very important statute, and we're going to examine um, how it's fared under the Trump administration. Uh, Professor Abate is the inaugural Recknitz Family Urban Coast Institute Endowed Chair in Marine and Environmental Law and Policy at Monmouth University where he teaches courses in domestic and international environmental law, constitutional law, and animal law. And some of his materials are, uh, you saw as you entered the room. Professor Abate has 24 years of full-time law teaching experience at six US law schools. He's published five books and more than 30 law journal articles and book chapters on environmental and animal law topics. Asher Smith is uh, here today in substitution for Jeff Kerr, who uh, but they're both from PETA. Uh, Jeff had a litigation that he had to uh, uh, participate in tomorrow, and so he's en route. Um, Asher is the litigation counsel at PETA Foundation. As part of the PETA Foundation's dedicated litigation team, Asher has represented PETA in numerous efforts to protect animals exploited for entertainment, research, or by the food industry. He's litigated numerous Endangered Species Act cases, challenging harm and harassment of captive tigers and lions. He's currently litigating against the notorious Indiana roadside zoo that proudly admits to decline baby lions and tigers in order to facilitate tiger baby playtime events. He is also Peter's lead counsel, representing consumers in a false advertising lawsuit against Nellie's free-range eggs, the country's largest supplier of free-range eggs. Asher previously served as an associate at Paul Weiss. He received his JD from Yale Law School and his BA from <coughs> Emory University. I personally have stopped purchasing Nellie's as soon as I learned about this lawsuit. Dr. Sue Lieberman is actually going to start us out. Um, she's the Vice President in National Policy with the Wildlife Conservation Society, where she directs and leads WCS's policy engagement in multiple intergovernmental forums. She has worked in international biodiversity conservation at the intersection of science and policy for more than 30 years including extensive experience with international wildlife trade and intergovernmental policy. Previously, she worked for the Pew Charitable Trusts, WWF International, and the U.S. Department of the Interior Fish and Wildlife Service. She obtained her PhD in tropical ecology from the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. She, Sue is a conservation fellow at the Zoological Society of London and appointed member of the United for Wildlife Royal Foundation Transport Task Force 
and a member of the IUCN Tortoise and Freshwater Turtle Specialist Group. She was an appointed member of President Obama's Advisory Council on Wildlife Trafficking and is a past member of the IUCN Species Survival Commission Steering Committee. Joan Elson, who's at the <coughs> table, is a partner in the DC office of Van Ness Feldman uh, LLP. Joe has for over 25 years uh, has over 25 years experience working on environmental review and permitting <coughs> of energy, natural resource, and water resource projects. It represents public and investor-owned electric utilities on energy regulatory matters before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. His practice includes representation of clients before the Department of the Interior, Environmental Protection Agency, Army Corps of Engineers, Fish and Wildlife Service, National Marines Fisheries Service, National Park Service, and other federal agencies and commissions. As permitting counsel, Joe provides strategic advice and representation before federal agencies and environmental review and permitting matters under the Endangered Species Act, the Water Act, National Environmental Policy Act, and other environmental statutes. In addition, Joe has litigated before state and federal courts and before administrative boards. Prior to private practice, he served on legislative staffs of former Senator James McClure and Representative Larry Craig, both uh, Republicans from the state of Idaho. Joe earned his JD from the Columbus School of Law at the Catholic University of America and received a BA from the University of Idaho. And finally, Danny Waltz is a staff attorney at the ALDF, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, where he develops creative legal strategies to advocate for improved welfare and increased protections for animals. After graduating from NYU School of Law, my alma mater, he spent two years as a litigation fellow in, uh, in ALDF. Danny's prior experience also includes serving as a teaching fellow in Georgetown University Law Center's Environmental Law Clinic and as a staff attorney on the Farm Animal Litigation Team at the Humane Society of the U.S. Danny lives on Capitol Hill with his wife, dog, and young daughter, and spends his dwindling free time drinking coffee, biking, and playing ultimate frisbee. And maybe sometime soon, a second dog. <laughs> so, uh, I just <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, I'm now going to turn it over and Thank you very much, Mickey, for those introductions and, and thank you to Sejal and the uh, Animal Law Committee for inviting me to moderate this exciting panel. Uh, as, as someone who lives at the intersection of animal law and environmental law, I'm just thrilled to, to be here and, and, and to, to participate in this event. Um, the Endangered Species Act is, is Without question, my favorite statute. If it's if it's nerdy to have a favorite statute, I, I confess fully. Um, so uh, it's it's something that I've come at from the environmental law perspective for most of my career, and then most recently, uh, getting into the animal law field and seeing how uh, the ESA works quite nicely, doing double duty and uh, offers tremendous potential as a statute that can advance both fields uh, agendas. So uh, just a brief overview about how we're proceeding tonight. Each uh, presenter will have 10 minutes for their initial presentations, and then we will have a Q&A uh, amongst ourselves, and uh, hopefully you'll feel very much included, but you're not able to participate at that point. It'll be about 40 minutes of some questions that I'll be posing to the panelists and getting their contributions to, to advance the discussion a bit more. And then at the end, uh, we'll reserve 30 minutes for uh, audience Q&A uh, and, and wrap things up that way. So we're, we're uh, seeking to, to end at, at about 8.35 or somewhere in that vicinity. So I'll be keeping very strict 
uh, track of time. I've even practiced my coloring within the lines to have a lot, uh, <laughs> time cards to keep our speakers on track. So I should stop talking and turn things off uh, over to uh, Dr. Sue Lieber. Do we need the microphone? Are you recording it? Is that it? Because I prefer to stand and move around. Okay, I'll just wave my arms. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I, I feel like the the only biologist in a room of attorneys, but I will do my best. Um, and what I'm going to talk about from the perspective of the Endangered Species Act, and it is my favorite statute, though the Lacey Act comes very close. The Lacey Act is an amazing piece of legislation as well. Anyhow, um, so what I'm going to first start with is just because some of you, I'm so hard to talk sitting down, some of you may not know the Wildlife Conservation Society, so I just wanted to give you a quick map. This is where we work around the world. We work in 62 countries, and what I do is coordinate everything from an international policy perspective. What do we need, for example, for our work in Central Africa, for our work in Mozambique, for our work in, in Argentina and Chile, from, from international treaties, from the UN, et cetera? Just to give you a sense, can answer any question about any species or, or anywhere we work. But I'm going to talk about the CITES, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, and the Endangered Species Act, and the relationship between the two. Because I think that the relationship between the two is not just an academic issue, it's directly relevant to what this, the Trump administration is trying to do and what the risks and dangers would be if, if they do what they're trying to do. And how CITES, though many of you already know this, how CITES is implemented in the US, and what does the Endangered Species Act do for a species that CITES doesn't do, what, from, from the perspective of a regulatory perspective, et cetera. And I want to talk a little about elephants and ivory as an example of CITES versus the Endangered Species Act, et cetera. And I just put this up because it's my favorite that I use at CITES meetings. In other words, but CITES is not meant to be just the last ditch effort to save the species. So you all know this, but I often give this talk, talk about CITES. CITES was negotiated in Washington, DC. Every country other than the US calls it the Washington Convention. We don't call it just like Ramsar, the Freshwater Convention, is called the Ramsar Convention, but not really in, in Ramsar, Iran. Um, there are now 183 parties, but 182 countries, because the European Union is now a party. It's a government, but of course, not a country. And these are all the countries that are now parties to the convention. So it's basically universal, very, well, there's a couple Pacific Islands that don't show up on the map, but basically it's, it's global. So I want to, I always hesitate to put a lot of words on a slide, but I figure people who are attorneys, you can have a lot of words on a slide. But people, you mentioned 1973 as the Endangered Species Act, but if from the perspective of foreign species on the act, and CITES, and what this administration would do if they get their way, is what is some of the history? CITES was first conceived of at an IUCN Congress meeting in 1963, where there was a resolution, and the US was one of the leaders behind that, in need for a treaty on international wildlife trade. The trade that drove that at the time, well, I should do this as a trivia question if anyone knows, was the trade in big cats for the fur trade. The leopards, et cetera, for tigers for the fur trade, not, not for the medicine trade, et cetera. 
Then there was the Endangered Species Preservation Act of 1966, but did not specify foreign species. 1969 was the first time that species threatened with worldwide extinction and, and aspects of importation without a permit were included. That's the precursor to today's Endangered Species Act. The Endangered Species Act was signed at the conference in Washington, D.C. on March 3rd, 1973. It's why the UN decided March 3rd can be World Wildlife Day. They just made that up. Um, but what's really interesting about the Endangered Species Act, it's both, animal, both animals and plants, but it also prohibits take and trade without a permit, required federal, federal agencies to take certain actions, but at the same time the U.S. was negotiating and leading the negotiation with, there were 80 countries present when CITES was signed, so CITES entered into, forth, into force actually before the Endangered Species Act was signed. And CITES, I mean, CITES was signed before the Endangered Species Act was signed, but CITES entered into force after 10 countries ratified it. You can guess which the 10 countries, these are the first 10 countries to, to ratify the CITES Convention, and all the photos are CITES-listed species, and you can ask me later uh, what they are. It's just an interesting bit of trivia, which, which were the first countries and which are the ones you would have thought would be some of the first uh, we're not necessarily. So how does CITES work? And, I, and some of you know this well, so I apologize. Governments are required to declare a management authority and a scientific authority, and they take decisions at, at meetings that are every two years. The treaty says the meeting's every two years. It's slipped to every three years now, so they're violating the treaty, but no one seems to care. Um, but any trade in CITES listed species, oh no, I'm going to have to go faster. Has to, I haven't been talking for five minutes. At any rate, you, your timer is off. These are the CITES meetings where the decisions are taken. The next one is coming up this May um, in Sri Lanka. I'll skip the delightful cartoon. So how is it enforced in the U.S. is under the authority of the Endangered Species Act. And that's absolutely critical. If a person violates... CITES imports in Appendix 1, that means it's a threatened species that can't be traded into the U.S. without a permit. They're violating the Endangered Species Act. There are different permits for Appendix 1, 2, and 3 species, but the key issue is that it's an Endangered Species Act violation. So why list foreign species on the Endangered Species Act if you already have CITES? And that's what this administration is arguing because, of course, the provisions of CITES are not as strong as the provisions of the Endangered Species Act. CITES says nothing about interstate commerce. It says CITES is about whether or not the import is for, purposes, for Appendix 1, purposes not detrimental to the species, but nothing about having to prove that it any import enhances the survival of the species. And I know there are issues whether how the government makes those enhancement findings, but if we only had, and this is what the administration is trying to do, trying to remove foreign species from the Endangered Species Act and say CITES is protection enough, um, as well as in, under the Endangered Species Act, there are, there are requirements that you cannot sell or offer for sale in foreign commerce, et cetera. Those subject to laws of the U.S. can actually be prosecuted, as, as you know, for engaging in foreign commerce in a species listed on the Endangered Species Act, even if it doesn't enter the United States. So that, that's one reason why one reason why the administration is trying to remove foreign species from the act, either through regulation or legislation, is because there are, there are more restrictions. And in particular, the motivation is, of course, largely trophies coming from the Department of Interior. Um, I just thought I'd quickly mention Section 4D of the Endangered Species Act, 
which allows the government for threatened species to have special rules. And in 1978, Fish and Wildlife Service declared that all threatened species were treated by, as endangered species unless there was a special rule. It's sort of guilty, not guilty, but guilty till proven innocent, if you will. And, and it's very powerful. And about half of the species that are foreign species that are listed, half of the species that are listed have this 4D rule. That's how we have the ban on interstate commerce, an almost total ban in this country on sale of ivory now. That was all pushed in, in 2016. We got it in 2016. It's under the Endangered Species Act. We banned imports into the United States before CITES put the African elephant on Appendix 1 under the African Elephant Conservation Act, which, which was passed in Congress. I testified back in the late 80s because they were listed on the Endangered Species Act. The proposed rule that has been proposed by the administration is to eliminate this blanket 4D rule. Basically to say, right now that anything is, you can't have, you can't import it, you can't have interstate commerce unless there's some sort of a special rule that allows it. They want to eliminate that. It's extremely dangerous. I was asked to talk briefly. I'll talk briefly. He's going to show me the one minute. I can do it in one minute. About trophy imports into the U.S. And then, by the way, on CITES, happy to answer any questions afterwards. Trophy imports in the United States, there's a bit of a misunderstanding of what the Obama administration and this administration did. Trophy imports are different if the species is on Appendix 1 or 2 of CITES and if it's on the Endangered Species Act. If it's Appendix 2 of CITES and it's threatened, there is a, it only requires a CITES permit. Unless there's a 4D rule, it can come in the U.S. without an Endangered Species Act permit. That was heavy lobbying by the trophy, the safari club, the safari hunters, even way back when. But the import permits, if a species is listed as endangered and on CITES 1, they require an enhancement finding. The government has to determine that the importation of the trophy enhances the survival of the species in the wild. I can talk later basically how they can determine that, but that's the requirement. The Obama administration said certain trophies, from they, they made the findings based on a country-by-country -country basis. And when I worked at the Fish and Wildlife Service, Back in the 90s, we did it as a, on a country-by-country -country basis, looking at countries' management, corruption, ability to control the trade, ability to use the funds properly. So the Obama administration said that two countries, they weren't going to issue any permits for elephants and, and for elephants and lions. The Trump administration overruled that and said, we are going to issue all these permits. Trump spoke up and said, I don't like trophy hunting at all shouldn't do it at all, so now they're issuing them, quote unquote, on a case-by-case -case basis. I tried to find out, and I can't find out if they actually issue, have issued any or not since then. They have lots of applications, but they're now issuing on a, quote, case-by-case -case basis, which means they're not looking at country-by-country, country, and in my view, not looking at the management systems of the countries. I'm out of time. Just want to note there are a number of other laws in the United States that build on the Endangered Species Act, and do additional things, but provide authorization for funding of these endangered species that are absolutely critical. If foreign species were removed from the act or something done through regulation, these acts as well would be threatened. And these acts together have been last, just this year, the appropriations for these are called the multilateral species conservation funds of $10.9 million for those species. The Trump administration in 19, the request for this fund, and this fund is what covers, 
which covers African elephants, Asian elephants, rhinos, tigers, great apes, sea turtles, etc. The, the amount they requested was zero. Congress put it all back in with a little extra. The amount they requested in FY20, and this goes for work outside the United States only. It goes to governments, NGOs, we benefit from it, so do many others. The FY20 request is also zero. So the harm of the administration, in addition to legislation and regulations, is of course appropriations. And I am out of time, so thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sue. Our next speaker is Asher Smith. Do you need this thingy? I guess My name is Asher Smith. I'm litigation counsel with the PETA Foundation. My presentation will be a little bit different than the rest of what you'll hear tonight. While many people think of the Endangered Species Act as focusing on wild animals, PETA's Endangered Species Act litigation tends to focus on captive animals. The subject tonight is the Endangered Species Act under the Trump administration. The very short summary of what PETA uses the Endangered Species Act to do is enforce animal welfare laws where the government won't and ensure that people who exploit captive animals face consequences. I'm gonna talk about a few of PETA's Captive Endangered Species Act lawsuits, mostly successes. I'm gonna start with a lawsuit that ended in failure but we think still provides a pretty interesting example of what we're trying to do and why. So what you're looking at is Lolita the Orca. This is actually the lonely the only lone captive orca in North America. Uh, she is in the smallest orca tank in North America. This is Miami Seaquarium. And what you see above everyone there is a shade structure intended to shield people from the sun. Lolita doesn't have that. Lolita has a condition called surfer's eye. Uh, she has advanced kidney failure. She has papilloma around her blowhole. She has, as you can see here and in this next slide, a tank that is about the same size height-wise in terms of water depth as she is. She's 80 feet long. The tank's water depth is about 80 feet high. Uh, the tank is about, I think it's, sorry, I have it written down. The tank is 20 feet deep. The tank is 80 feet long. In the wild, the captive orca will swim about 100 miles a day and dive literally hundreds of feet every day. These conditions actively harm Lolita. Whales are social animals. Um, if you've ever read anything about whales, it's actually really awesome. Uh, pods of whales have their own languages, dialects, cultures, songs. Whales know the songs of their pods. Uh, one time someone actually played the song of Lolita's pod, which she last would have heard in the 1970s, and she perked up, she recognized it still. 
That's not what Lolita has now. Uh, Lolita's housed with dolphins who she does not get along with. They harm her by raking her with their teeth, which causes wounding. Peter thought this was pretty bad, and so did a lot of other activists and animal groups. So alongside the ALDF and the Orca Network, Peter filed suit alleging a take under the Endangered Species Act. A take means that you harm, you hunt, you kill, you wound, or you harass a protected animal. The case for why Lolita's conditions would amount to a take, we, we think, were fairly straightforward. No whale should be housed alone. No whale should be subjected to this kind of wounding, to surfer's eye, to kidney failure. Unfortunately, the court ultimately didn't see it that way. Um, Lolita presented a unique case. She is past the median age of a, of a whale from her precise whale species. She's been living in this tank for literally more than 40 years. Citing the unique conditions of her confinement and the unique conditions of litigating an Endangered Species Act suit around such an elderly animal, the court found that to find a take, PETA would need to prove a threat of serious injury to Alita, not just that her conditions cause her, for example, constant mental distress. Suffice it to say, we think this was wrong. We think this is clearly not the text of the Endangered Species Act. We think that her case was very straightforward and that the court didn't really engage with the information our experts provided. But that's where we are. We appealed to the 11th Circuit. We got shot down. But in the decision shooting us down, the 11th Circuit again specified that the decision on Lolita was couched in her unique personal circumstances. So that's not the end for us in the 11th Circuit, actually. We have a second case in the same jurisdiction, this time in a district court in Florida, against Dade City Wild Things. Dade City Wild Things is one of the most notorious exhibitors of, of captive lions and tigers in the country to hold events that are basically public encounters or photo opportunities with captive lions and tigers. I'll show you here. Oh, wait. I can do this. It's not on the screen. Make sure it didn't come loose. The, the VGA still it's tight. Uh, yeah. Oh well. I'll just talk at you guys. Everyone loves that, right? <laughs> then we won't spend any more time. So, public encounters of captive lions and tigers is actually one of the bigger appeals of for roadside zoos, and one of their greatest money makers. 
It also fuels a lot of the captive animal trade in lions and tigers. There's a high demand for cubs because the, because the USDA under the Animal Welfare Act doesn't let anyone, any member of the public interact with lions and tigers who are more than, I believe, 16 weeks old. So you have all these cubs in the market for public encounters who eventually become lions and tigers that are more than 16 weeks old. What happens to them? A lot of them stay at these roadside zoos like Dade City's Wild Things, uh, and they just stay in barren cages with little, with little enrichment, poor food, usually roadkill that they get donated to them, or they get sent into the private pet market to live in people's bathrooms. So, our case against Day City Wild Things is actually going really well, but it's having, it's had a kind of winding path. So part of an Endangered Species Act case tends to be seeking inspection of the animal, so you can have veterinarians look at them and look at their conditions of confinement. Dade City's Wild Things didn't want to let us do that. In fact, when PETA showed up at DCWT, we found that they had moved 19 of their lions and tigers to a different roadside zoo in Oklahoma. That's a 19-hour drive. One of the tigers was pregnant and gave birth during the drive. Uh, the cubs actually died without water and without access to temper con control during that. It was ex extremely sad, but we sought a court order and we got a good decision for the cubs. We got, we got all the lions and tigers that were removed except for the two that had died moved to a sanctuary, which is properly accredited. We also, in the process, got an agreement to move many of the animals that were held by the Oklahoma Roadside Zoo that they were moved to into sanctuaries. And right now, things look pretty good for our chances at, at moving all of Dade City's wild things, captive lions and tigers and other endangered animals, to reputable sanctuaries. We're not just suing in the 11th Circuit, though. And I'm going to end by talking about two cases that we have in the Seventh Circuit against a notorious roadside zoo called Wildlife in Need. Wildlife in Need is run by Tim Stark, who's one of the more notorious exhibitors of Tiger Baby Playtime events. His claim to fame is that to facilitate all, all of these Tiger Baby Playtime events, he declaws, and he proudly declaws. This presented a unique opportunity to create a precedent on declawing. As you might know, if any of you are cat lovers, uh, declawing is not simply trimming fingernails, it means severing, and I would have had a slide for this, it means severing each finger at the bone. So we're presenting evidence to the court that each declawing is itself harming, wounding, threatening to kill captive lions and tigers. It's a sad aspect of litigating these cases, but our case is helped by the fact that multiple tigers held by wildlife in need have died as a result of declawing. Because, as you can imagine, it's kind of hard for roadside zoos to find A, reputable vets to care for any of their animals, B, reputable vets to declaw their lions and tigers. So Tim, who does Tim Stark hire? He hires a racehorse vet who prescribed these animals antibiotics that were appropriate for racehorses, but as he found out, not lions and tigers. We've had a lot of success. We got a precedent setting 
preliminary injunction from the judge saying that because our case is likely to succeed, Tim Stark is enjoined from declawing lions and tigers, separating from their mother, or holding any public encounters before, before the case ends. We also filed a concurrent suit against the racehorse veterinarian who killed the two cubs, alleging that he also committed takes against these lions and tigers. Uh, spoiler alert on that case, he gave up. He agreed to a historic consent judgment saying that declawing lions and tigers violates the Endangered Species Act. So we're really excited for the future of Endangered Species Act litigation now that we both have these precedents and we also have a roadmap for what you need to prove, how you get discovery, and what will be compelling to the court. Our hope is that we can build on this and continue as the Trump administration won't enforce laws such as the Animal Welfare Act, that judges will still ban the worst abuses against animals. Thank you. Uh, sure. And next up is Joe Nelson. Um, and if, if I don't talk, I sometimes get a really low voice, so if, if I'm not, if you can't hear me, let me know. Uh, I, as you can guess, I'm a permitting attorney. I work for clients. If I, don't, if I do my job right, they comply with the law. That's my speech I give to every client I have. And what I, uh, from the perspective of what I want to talk today is just give you a real sense of what the administration has done. I'm going to talk a lot of details very quickly in 10 minutes. But... Um, Last July, the administration put out three rules, notice proposal rulemakings, one on Section 7, consultation relating to federal permitting, federal actions that um, have to consult with Fish and Wildlife Service or NIMS. Second is uh, changes to the listing and critical habitat designation process that's under Section 4. And the third is the uh, blanket rule, Section 4D change uh, that Ms. Lieberman already mentioned. Uh, each of those are uh, fairly discrete, act, believe it or not, discrete but still pretty substantive sets of changes uh, that they're proposing. Uh, I'll try to run through this fairly quickly. Um, on the Section 7, uh, which again, if you don't know, if you have a federal agency permitting action, they, the permitting authority or a, uh, federal agency has to consult with Fish and Wildlife Service or NIMS with respect to whether that agency action will cause, uh, affect a change upon a species or designated critical habitat, and then there's a series of levels of consultation that occur. The changes in the Section 7 NOPER really cover kind of a bunch of different elements of that. It's one, I, I refer to this as one part, changes to the technical analysis and sense of what's the scope of the analysis that's required for effects of the action, which is a key piece. Second is changing, thinking about programmatic reforms uh, the administration, both the Obama administration and the Trump administration, uh, the, uh, the career Fish and Wildlife Service in particular, they want to do more programmatic consultations because it's a, it lessens their burden uh, administratively. And then the third is addressing some of the ongoing litigation that has occurred where they're trying to take on a couple of issues that have been problematic in the courts for uh, Fish and Wildlife Service in particular. Uh, on a couple of particular issues. So uh, the changes that are in the Section 7 Notice of Proposal Rulemaking is one, 
changes to the adverse modification definition, which goes to the critical habitat process. Um, the, the big change that people will focus on is, is that it changes from consideration of alteration of critical habitat in maybe just a little parcel. The reference now is, is adverse modification to the critical hab habitat as a whole. So it's a big difference in the scope of the effects analysis that they're doing. Uh, second is a change, kind of two elements change of effects of the actions and what's called reasonably certain to occur. Causation-wise, you need to identify the effects of your action within a scope and then you have to, there has to be a consideration of what of the, the potential effects that you've identified, that the services identify, how many of those are reasonably certain to occur and how do you get to that conclusion about what is reasonably certain to occur? So that, again, it's that level of causation, you've heard it in, the, in a lot of the cases you hear, causation, that progression of impacts is quite important in, in that. Um, the, the key there is, is two elements. One, they're introducing the fact that beneficial actions can mitigate an adverse effect. It's actually something that the voluntary conservation people have wanted for years and have fought uh, with the agencies about, which is, is pre-project uh, activities that conserve and actually improve habitat are not necessarily counted today in the, in the Section 7 consultation process on behalf of that permitting person saying, we're doing this, we've done this, we've improved the habitat. And so there's one piece is, is allowing for beneficial acts to be considered as part of the effects analysis. And then the second is, is uh, looking at uh, reasonably certain to occur effects from what's called a but-for test at the end. This is but-for the federal agency action, would the effect occur for other reasons? This gets to climate change and some other issues with respect to climate ecological issues. What, at what point does a federal agency action, the effects you're measuring, are they from other actors or effects within a system? Uh, that's what that's getting to. Uh, then there's a bunch of other things that they've done that they've asked for comments on. They haven't proposed changes yet, but they asked for comments on Section 7 relating to what's called the environmental baseline. Uh, exclusions for no effect for, for what they view as small effects actions. Um, which are either no effect, remote risk, and no reliable metric or predictability. And if you're trying to figure out what does that mean, that's really going to an issue that David Bernard, who's now you know, nominated for Secretary of Interior, uh, wrote a solicitor's opinion back when he was uh, in the Bush administration about how to analyze effects of the action with respect to the polar bear. And do you have enough predictable analysis and ability to predict the results for purposes of making a determination. And this would produce, or they've asked, asked for comments about whether there should be categorical exclusions for certain what they view to be minor projects, those no effects ones, those where it's a particularly a remote risk, or the third, which is where the environmental groups have raised a significant concern, which is, is those that do not have a reliable metric or predictability i.e. climate change and the ability to scale down to a particular species uh, evaluation from a, a global effect. So that's the section seven. Uh, I'll try to quickly go through the section four, which is listing of critical habitat. Uh, section four, uh, they've, they've addressed a couple key pieces. One is treatment of unoccupied habitat. And if there's one thing you're gonna hear a lot more about under the Endangered Species Act in the next two or three years, it's about when do you designate 
uh, unoccupied habitat. This will go into the Mar Markle Warehouse case we're going to talk about. Uh, second is when is designation of critical habitat not prudent because of economic impacts, which is it's, in, it's included in the act. It's an element of the analysis, um, and it has been a tug of war, depending on which administration comes in, is how you do, when do you make a determination that an area, uh, while it may qualify for other reasons, it's not prudent to designate that particular parcel uh, because of, of other factors, particularly um, economic impacts, um, and then a couple other factors that, that can come into play. Uh, the other two is, is with respect to determining uh, whether a species is threatened, uh, that, that trigger is, is within the foreseeable future, right? That, that's the trigger for identification of threatened species. The, the Section 4 NOPR uh, clarifies the approach to be treated with respect to foreseeable future, uh, what can be bounded, how you bound, how far out do you look, so to speak. There's some cases out in the Ninth Circuit that they were really going after there. Uh, and in particular, uh, uh, I think it's the bearded seal and the ring seal cases up in Alaska, where they fought about the, the foreseeable future issue. Uh, then the last is uh, some clarifications in the Section uh, 4 delisting process, which is, has not been emphasized much in the regulatory language before. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. It's essentially saying the listing criteria uh, also become the delisting criteria. And trying to match up uh, that, that issue when, when you make a determination a species is recovering. Um, the last, just with respect to the Section 4D rule, just a couple of little clarifications on that. So the Section 4D rule context, it's Fish and Wildlife Service is the only entity that had the, the blanket rule act that they put out in 88, 89. National Marine Fisheries Service has always had the rule that Fish and Wildlife Service is not now adopting. When you list a species, you then make a determination whether to issue a special rule to identify the take. That's in the statute. That It's, it's part of the, the statute. The blanket uh, regulation was really a flip of the statutory text to say we're going to assume, as, as Ms. Libby said, we're going to assume we're going to always apply the full take prohibitions under Section 9 to all threatened species. They did so for bureaucratic reasons in particular. They were, they were having some significant budget issues, and this is one of the ways they limited and narrowed down the listing process so they didn't have to go through identifying special rules for every species. I'll add on this point. I think this is actually something that 4D rules have become more and more prevalent the agencies like them because there's more detail you can put into a 4D rule. The industries like them because they have more guidance. They know what the rules are to avoid take. Actually, I think that taking away the blanket prohibition makes Fish and Wildlife Service do its job. It's supposed to identify special rules. It now has the opportunity to do so, and it can do so in a way that actually will give more guidance to both the enforcement and to the permitting folks about how you approach take for threatened species. So in my perspective, it's not a, um, all the species that have a blanket protection right now will continue to have blanket protection because they're grandfathered. But for new species, they'll follow the same process NIPS does, identify special rules. And I, I think in future, you're actually going to see much more effective take rules than just saying that broad harm, harass, blank, blank, blank. 4D's rules are much more granular and actually in, in the end, 
better with respect to identifying what has to happen to ensure protection. So I actually think that's my own take on the 4D rule and why I actually think there's a lot of industry folks that don't like 4D rules because it gives too much prescription. It's like a zoning ordinance in, in their view. But it really does have some effect of giving Fish and Wildlife Service ordinance the ability to, to more broadly define how take occurs and how to uh, eliminate the potential for take. So thank you, Joseph. Just take the VGA cord. Oh, just take this. And uh, you put it somewhere else. I don't know. I don't have another else. Well, yeah, you can try some. Try control or alt F7. Yeah, at least that's on mine switch. how it works. Yeah, I don't control F7. I'm, I'm going to look at mine. It, mine it is. I don't know about that one. Sometimes it gets it back up. <coughs> but I, I don't know if it's the same one. Ah. Ah. Yeah, right. That should do it. That should do it. I can't guarantee if there's something wrong with the projector. Ah. <laughs> Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, Danny Waltz is next. Okay. Um, I'm going to touch on two cases in these ten minutes, uh, and I realize I'm really well situated here. Um, both of them deal with different aspects of the Endangered Species Act, but showing how litigation can lead to new understandings of the reach of the protections of the statute. Uh, the first case I'm going to talk about is the Weyerhaeuser, Weyerhaeuser the Fish and Wildlife Service case first opinion of the Supreme Court's October 2018 turn, uh, and I, I, I laugh about where I'm sitting because even though I'm talking about this, Joe actually submitted an amicus brief in the Supreme Court's case, and I think also in the Fifth Circuit below, yeah. um, so everything that I overstep on, <laughs> you can correct me to recognize. Uh, so the case concerns the dusky gopher frog. A cute little creature who I think, um, just on sympathy alone, should have won the case. Uh, when held, uh, I have to say a few things about him. When held by a human, he covers his eyes with his front legs um, and plays dead. Uh, and if you wait long enough as a human, you uh, you can the the frog will actually peek out to see if <laughs> danger is still there. If he's still in a tricky situation. Uh, just a few years ago, there were only a uh, hundred dusky gopher frogs left. They all live in Missis lived, and they all live in Mississippi. They need to live in a very specific environment. They breed in ephemeral ponds, which are ponds that dry out at some point throughout the year to keep predators away. Um, and they live the rest of their lives underground in open canopied pine forests. And they need to have that type of forest between the ponds and where they hang out. Uh, sort of a Goldilocks situation. Uh, several years after listing the frog, after s being compelled to through litigation, the Fish and Wildlife Service finally got around to designating critical habitat, and the service decided to add the habitat in, in a couple ways as follows. First, the certain habitat would be designated in the areas of Mississippi where they currently live, um, where the frogs, and uh, where they have lived. Um, but because these Mississippi areas were so localized, uh, there was a concern by the, the service that 
drought or some other sort of weather issue would completely wipe out the species. Uh, so the service found ephemeral ponds elsewhere, I guess higher upland um, would be the way to put it. The joke can correct me on that later. <laughs> um, in, in an area of Louisiana and designated this Louisiana uh, as critical habitat. But something to note about the Louisiana critical habitat happened to be owned entirely by uh, private landowners, including Weyerhaeuser. And also, uh, there weren't pine trees above, the necessary pine trees above. Ephemeral ponds were great, but there would be, need to be some sort of modification of the habitat to actually make it a this, These are some facts that I'm not sure are completely certain yet, but um, there would have to be some sort of habitat modification for the, for the species to thrive. Um, okay, here's how the uh, Endangered Species Act guides critical, habit critical habitat designation. Um, when listing a species, Fish and Wildlife Service or National Marine Fisheries Service NIMFS must designate any habitat uh, that can be then considered as critical habitat. And it has a process of designating the, uh, the habitat according to whether the areas are currently occupied by the species or two, um, outside of the geographical area occupied by the species. And, and as Joe was saying, why this critical habitat designation matters is that it limits what the federal government can do. Uh, under Section 7, federal agencies are prohibited from, probably a short way of saying this is, they're prohibited from getting involved in any action likely to result in the destruction or adverse modification of critical, critical habitat without um, approval, without uh, otherwise getting approval. Um, after the designation uh, of the Louisiana parcel, the critical habitat for the dusky gopher frog, a number of landowners, uh, including Weyerhaeuser, uh, challenged, uh, challenged the designation. They were, they were represented by a nonprofit group called Pacific Legal Foundation, who's interested in uh, how the Endangered Species Act should look. Uh, among other claims, the plaintiffs argued so there was some Commerce Clause and NEPA claims that I don't want to talk about, but the, the two claims that were really at issue were the plaintiffs argued that habitat that is not occupied and needs to be modified for the species to survive cannot be critical, critical habitat. Because if you think about it like that, I mean, even a Walmart parking lot could be eventually modified to become a habitat that you would live in. Uh, the second argument they made was that the Fish and Wildlife Service aired when it ignored its economic impact analysis, uh, in doing its economic impact analysis, it ignored certain costs of designating the habitat, uh, such as the cost of replacing the trees with the pine trees that they need, uh, or the cost of the foregone tax revenue that would have that these landowners would receive if they uh, developed the property instead of setting aside for frogs. Uh, the trial court, though, and the Fifth Circuit ruled against. Uh, uh, the plaintiffs um, saying that uh, pretty much on the, on the ha habitat analysis uh, essentially uh, deferred under Chevron to the Fish and Wildlife Service by saying uh, the word essential here in, in the critical habitat definition is ambiguous and it's ambiguous enough to encompass the type of action that the Fish and Wildlife Service was planning to do. Um, 
the Fifth Circuit also found that the term uh, found that uh, the economic analysis, the economic challenge to the designation of critical habitat was judicially unreviewable because it's committed to agency discretion. Um, yes. So um, this is this is the section of the Endangered Species Act that requires an economic impact analysis for designating critical habitat, and then there's a, 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 a certain process that the secretary must follow, or the agency must follow, when excluding certain critical habitat from designation. Um, the court said that there's no, in the, this second paragraph here, there's no standard to be found for a decision not to exclude critical habitat. So the decision to exclude critical habitat, there's a standard there, but if the, the agency decides just to keep that critical habitat in and not, ex and not exclude, so it's double negative there, sorry, there's no, there's no judicially reviewable standard. The Supreme Court, though, reversed the Fifth Circuit on both holdings. Uh, on, on the definition of critical habitat, the court held that Fifth Circuit erred at the very, very beginning by not first defining habitat. And because the word habitat was not defined really at any point in the process, District Court, Fifth Circuit, even by the agency, uh, the court punted. And it didn't determine whether the Louisiana property could be or could not be critical habitat. It said, send it back to the, to the Fifth Circuit to decide what habitat could be. Um, the, actually, the only guidance that the court gave was that it was a parenthetical stating that habitat can include areas where the species does not live. But if you look here, that's like really plain from the statute. <laughs> so that's not much guidance. Um, Okay, uh, uh, just a couple notes on this, this holding by the Supreme Court. Uh, Professor Lisa Heinzerling of Georgetown says that she thinks she wouldn't be surprised if the, the ultimate decision here, again, is a, def is deferred, is a court deferring to the agency because the court deferred to the agency on the first go-around, and it's very likely the, the Fish and Wildlife Service is going to try to define habitat. In fact, I just heard that they are planning to do that. <laughs> uh, we were talking a little bit earlier. Um, my reaction, though, is, is that um, also to this is that I think climate change is going to make the definition of habitat very perilous here. Uh, just thinking about how the Anthropocene changes, uh, changes areas, changes uh, environments in, in ways much faster than species can, can evolve, we'll have to think about how humans should modify uh, the environment. Um, uh, and then on, the, on this claim, on the economic impacts claim, the court held that uh, the errors in the, the, the challenged errors in comparing the relative benefits of excluding the Louisiana, uh, the Louisiana property from critical habitat is judicially reviewable. Because apparently there is a standard uh, under Section 4B2. The court said, and I'm, I'm going to quote this verbatim, Section 4B2 requires the secretary to consider economic impacts and relative benefits before deciding whether to exclude an area from critical habitat or to proceed with de designation. And I think this, or to proceed with designation, which the court just threw in, um, my reaction is that this, this reads more into the statutory text than is actually there. I agree with the Fifth Circuit that there's really only a standard here to look at excluding critical habitat. There doesn't appear to be one for including it uh, um, in a designation. Um, and right now, while the holding only requires 
consideration of economic impacts um, without being uh, outcome determinative. I think the court's willingness to expand the economic analysis requirement um, could pave the way for an eventual ratchet um, where the economic benefits of including critical habitat have to outweigh the economic benefits of excluding it. Um, I was going to talk about another captive ES ESA case, but I've run through my 10 minutes and uh, we can get into it. And, uh, we've already got a great. Great. Thank you, Danny. Hopefully we'll find a way to work that into right. our <laughs> discussion. So taking a quick look at the time here. Um, I'm going to propose maybe 25 minutes for the, the, the panel interactive discussion and then, uh, then maybe um, an, another 25 or so for, for the audience questions. So um, just to give you a roadmap of what I anticipate we should be able to cover in our uh, intra-panel discussion here, uh, really three basic questions that have some subparts, but just to give you a sense of what's coming, uh, the first is going to address um, proposed changes to the Department of Interior's FOIA regulations, uh, and, and that will be our first package of discussion. And then the second will be the impact of lax Animal Welfare Act enforcement and its relationship to Endangered Species Act lawsuits. So a nice little connection there between animal law and environmental law. And then the third will be um, these proposed ESA regulations that you've heard reference to. Um, going to take a look at uh, three of those that are fr uh, proposed from uh, July 2018 and, and very relevant to the discussion that you've heard in the initial presentations. Uh, get a little panel dialogue on the, the effect of those uh, proposed regulations. <coughs> so we'll, we'll start with this proposed changes to the Department of Interior's Freedom of Information Act regulations, FOIA regulations. Uh, so this was late last year, December 28th. Um, and three proposed changes here. Um, first, allowing uh, DOI to reject requests it finds unduly, unreasonably burdensome, in quotes. Um, so we're talking about requests for information and the DOI's ability to reject those requests for information if it deems them to be unreasonably burdensome. The second, uh, imposing limits on records it will process for individual requesters. So this is you're being too much of a nag kind of uh, characterization. Limits on the number of records a, an, an individual requester can receive from DOI. And the third, uh, decreasing the availability of fee waivers for public interest organizations. So certainly significant potential impact there on public interest litigation if the um, availability of those fee waivers is reduced, then there's going to be a limit on the access of those, those groups to the information they need to conduct their litigation. So I put those three parts of the proposed regulations out for discussion in any order. So we haven't heard from you in a while. Any comments on that? 
haven't heard from me for a while. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not that familiar with that proposed rule as much as the other proposed rule. Um, so we can. But I think it's, well, I think, I think we know why they're doing it. But uh, I think in particular, the first one seems the most dangerous to me because that they're, ma they're placing a, a value judgment on what's appropriate or not. And I think that's, we know what that means. And I used to work in the Department of Interior. <laughs> yeah, it's work to fill a FOIA request, that's true. But uh, we were never able to say, well, this doesn't seem quite reasonable. Really don't want to share this information. I think that's dangerous. You're all the attorneys, is that even legal under the, the statute? Well, I'd like uh, to hear from Joe first on that. Uh, well, and I, I probably have a, an odd take here. So I actually do two things. One, I, I don't agree with uh, a couple of the, the proposals with the unduly burdens. I think uh, they're doing what they, you said what they want to do, which is, is they, they would like to ignore a lot of the FOIA requests or narrow them because it's a huge burden on their time and resources. Um, my perspective is this, is one, uh, most of these cases, uh, part of the reason people file, file FOIA requests is because the services, the agencies don't do a good job of, of maintaining the administrative record of the regulatory decisions that they're making. And from our, from our perspective, we care about the, the administrative record uh, because it documents anything that we're going to have to go through uh, for purposes if, if we're uh, litigating the matter after, after the regulatory action. So we want a robust administrative record. We want one that's accurate, timely, it doesn't take forever, and then ultimately it doesn't require somebody else to file a FOIA lawsuit to get the full information. So from my perspective, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a combination of, one, they need to do a much better job of, of developing administrative records on the regulatory side. Uh, it would, two, lessen some of the FOIA requests that come in because people wouldn't feel like they have to file a FOIA request before they file the litigation, which is very, very typical. And um, the other piece is, is that the FOIA officers that you get in most of the agencies are very black and white. They will, they, they will read the words as you've drafted on the table, they, they won't interpret, they, the nuance is lost on them. And so, and they, the way these regs look right now, you're, you're gonna see a lot more rejections of FOIA requests unless you have incredibly detailed FOIA requests and manage them in a way that, that they just can't make those determinations. It's going to make it harder to draft the FOIA request, in my perspective, but it, uh, so I, I'll, I'll be interested to see how far they go. I think, I, I doubt they change much of what they want here, but, uh, I've, and I think the comment period has closed. I don't know if it has closed or not. Mm, yeah, I'm not sure about that. Um, so I, I'm interested though in kind of connecting that point to another one that, that we'll get to later in our third piece of the discussion, but you, you are in favor of a programmatic consultation as, as a streamlining effort, and, and it's, and it's uh, an interesting kind of um, dichotomy there that the, the proposed streamlining, if you will, or benefit to the agency in reducing the number of requests, you, you don't seem to be in favor of, whereas the programmatic consultation, you, you, you do seem to be in favor of that kind of streamlining. Okay. okay. Um, and the, just the reason, so, sorry, for programmatic consultations, what I'm referring to then, uh, a good example is um, the Obama administration did a programmatic uh, consultation on wind, uh, wind projects interconnecting to the Western WAPA system. Uh, it was a big programmatic. They, they've developed an analysis of 
effects on endangered species relating to the, the WAPA interconnections for wind projects. They wanted to do that because wind projects have huge avian issues. And programmatics in that sense because while you, the programmatic essentially allowed for that full analysis of, of av avian impacts for, for endangered species within that WAPA region in a way that all the wind developers then had the ability to say, that level of science is already in place. I don't have to repeat that science for each of my individual consultations when I inter interconnect into the WAPA system. I still have to do site-specific surveys. I still have to figure out where my bald, e bald eagles are. I still have to figure out what species are in my specific area. But I've got a programmatic there that's given me a lot of that baseline data. And then second, I've got a set of general mitigation, reasonable prudent measures, which they're called, that if you have comply with reasonable and prudent measures, you get what's called incidental take authorization for potential harassment or harm of species to a certain level. And so that, the programmatic gave some initial kind of level of RPMs. They still apply a more project specific when they go through that process for the individual wind projects. But programmatic can really give, when you're trying to go through and you have a regional area where you're doing a lot of the same projects, uh, programmatics work and they actually give it, it, it services like them because, again, they're able to really do that science review one time and then develop a set of core operating practices that would help. So that's, what, from my perspective, why programmatic consultations can be effective. Um, and in most cases, uh, you know, they, they're always still backstopped by an individual consultation for any project that has actual federal permitting. They don't get out of the consultation. They go through a separate one, but it's a much just a better process. You've got that tiering process, which can be important. Yeah, no, that's a helpful clarification. So, so, so Danny and uh, Ashley, certainly the, the the potential scaling back of of the FOIA um, access opportunities has implications for for both of you. Uh, so, Ashley, you want to take first? Yeah, it does. And I'll, I'm going to break some news here. PETA is opposed. <laughs> <laughs> We're shocked. Yeah, right. it's opposed <laughs> to limiting FOIA access. Uh, it, it's funny that you introduced. Uh, this topic and some of your other topics along the lines of the intersection between environmental and animal law because PETA actually partnered with the Center for Biological Diversity in its statement opposing this rule. And there frankly is a lot of intersection between FOIA access and how PETA litigates and how PETA is able to bring public attention to what animal exploiters are doing and decide whether or not to bring litigations. I can get into this more when we talk about the Animal Welfare Act, which is more directly implicated in the Endangered Species Act context, but suffice it to say, a, a lot of people who are doing things that the animal rights community might not see as friendly to animals are not throwing open their doors to the animal activists. So for us to get visibility in, into what they're doing, we really need FOIA. Danny? So I would just add a DC perspective. I live um, in the neighborhood that uh, Zinke either lives in or used to live in, and there were a lot of signs. Uh, there are a lot of signs uh, by all of his neighbors asking him to do things <laughs> left and right um, to change. Uh, you know, or were asking him. Actually, a lot of the signs are still up. But I, I it doesn't surprise me. Uh, wouldn't surprise me if this was partially a response to the massive amount of FOIA requests that led to the numerous investigations and eventual uh, 
uh, resignation of Secretary Zinke. I think the timing was pretty close together, and I, I think a lot of the FOIA requests were asking about certain actions that ended up being uh, scrutinized. Uh, and I would, I would just say that imposing the limits on individual requesters uh, is, um, is concerning for a lot of these large groups, large environmental groups, um, but also large animal groups like PETA and Animal Legal Defense Fund. Um, and it, if you have, this isn't always the case, but if you have a lawsuit in mind, often you have plaintiffs who you're working with, and a, perhaps a workaround would be to think about who would these people, you know, who, who could be asking, who could be submitting a FOIA request that may not be Animal Legal Defense Fund, but Animal Legal F Defense Fund would be representing their interests. Very helpful. Okay, so that, that's our first step of, of the three. So moving into the uh, connection between lax enforcement of the Animal Welfare Act and its implications for ESA lawsuits, just to give you a, a sense of that, is that certainly ESA lawsuits are going to be more difficult without the uh, uh, robust enforcement under the Animal Welfare Act um, because you often see these ESA claims for captive animals as as Asher was addressing um, in zoos and aquariums, uh, piggybacking off initial uh, kind of underlying uh, Animal Welfare Act violations. Um, so, I know, Sue, this isn't part of your... It's not my okay. uh, specialty. We're, we're, we're going to get to you on that 4D. It's okay. <laughs> you're, you're definitely coming next I'll time. I'll defer. Um, so, um, this time we can start with, with Danny, perhaps, on this one? Sure. Um, so... <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess there's a lot, a lot to say about this. It, I think two ways that the that Animal Welfare Act enforcement touches on the captive ESA cases that I can think of are, um, I mean, if you're looking at how you want to prove your claim. Let's see if I can actually put this up. Yes, awesome. So the harass definition, um, when applied to captive animals, uh, there's an exemption for animal husbandry practices that meet or exceed the minimum standards for facilities and care under the Animal Welfare Act. Um, so part of, if, if a, an exhibitor is, or sorry, if a facility is regulated by the Animal Welfare Act, by the USDA under the Animal Welfare Act, um, who you're suing, uh, you're likely going to have, and they're captive animals uh, at issue, you're likely going to have to prove that, uh, that the facility is not meeting the minimum standards of the Animal Welfare Act. And the best way to prove that would be through enforcement that the USDA is doing, so inspection reports that uh, USDA inspectors are writing, or um, enforcement actions that the USDA is taking. Um, and so it, it, if there's if there's a, a sort of limiting of that type of enforcement that can be uh, frustrating, um, it, can, it can definitely get in the way of the exception. Uh, but there are a number of captive animals that aren't regulated by the Animal Welfare Act. Um, there are even endangered captive animals that aren't regulated or that aren't protected by the Animal Welfare Act, like birds and reptiles. And so, um, if the USDA isn't doing its job and we advocates are flying blind when we bring these captive ESA claims, uh, we should be doing uh, with animals that are covered by the Animal Welfare Act uh, the same thing that we would do if we were bringing a case uh, to protect animals that aren't covered by the Animal Welfare Act. 
And I know, Joe, this isn't part of your domain either, so yeah. we'll, we'll hear a comment from Asher on this one. Sure. And a way that FOIA and Animal Welfare Act violations are really helpful to people who litigate for animals is that resource allocation is difficult. You don't want to start an Endangered Species Act case on behalf of captive animals. You don't want to pick a target unless you know that you're targeting the worst of the worst. And how do you know who the worst of the worst is? Well, Tim Stark in Wildlife in Need had 50 violations in five years. A good record for an exhibitor of endangered animals is zero. So he's a pretty good choice. And ways that uh, the USDA has made this tougher for us are, I, I mean, really several fold. One is that uh, they've stopped issuing a number of, of violations. They've tried to break down the kind of guidance they give exhibitors from if they see something wrong, giving a violation that shows up in an inspection report that then ALDF or PETA can FOIA and see the violation. They've created more categories. So now there's, for example, a teachable moment category that's getting a lot of attention from them. And what this is, is it's a partially a way for an inspector to see, oh, that's wrong. I'm going to consider this a teachable moment. I'm going to maybe chat with the exhibitor about it. But then it never gets in a report. We don't see it. Another problem for us under Animal Welfare Act enforcement is that there's an increased focus on only citing for violations that violate the letter of the law of the Animal Welfare Act, which if you're familiar with the landscape of animal law, isn't that much. Uh, for example, under the Obama administration, the USDA had a very helpful animal care manual that got sent to every exhibitor. This animal care manual had a number of really great points that we liked and we liked to cite. For example, explaining that the AVMA considers seriously condemns declawing and that declawing should be considered inadequate veterinary care. Uh, they've since drawn back this, this, this policy manual and while we would argue this doesn't change the law at all, it leaves a lot of ambiguity. For example, if an inspector has to cite for inadequate veterinary care of an animal, and what, what is the letter of the law of inadequate veterinary care? The AVMA isn't law. There's no policy manual anymore. So what are they going to do? It's kind of up to each inspector in a way that ultimately means that we learn less with each FOIA request. Great. Thank you, Asher. So that's, that's part two of our three steps in this intra-panel discussion. So the third step is the implications of these proposed ESA. Uh, implementing regulations, and I know that Sue made reference to Section 4D, and so we can certainly start there, this proposed removal of the blanket rule protection under uh, Section 4D for threatened species. Yeah, I think we seem to have a different perspective yes. on this, <laughs> um, and I, I, I think that's fine, and for the record, we, in writing, opposed the, all of yeah. the proposed changes. I believe there's also a proposal to add economic considerations to listing of species. And I didn't mention that, or socioeconomic considerations, whether a species is threatened or endangered. I, I, don't, I have it, but somewhere buried here. We consider that extremely dangerous as well, because that's also proposed by a number of countries and CITES, and the U.S. has always opposed it. And if the U.S. starts 
taking economic factors into consideration under the ESA, it might change their longstanding policy uh, internationally. But on the 4D rule, with the blanket rule, the, uh, the idea is if a species is listed as threatened, then import and interstate commerce is still prohibited unless the agency adopts a special rule. The tendency of agencies is not to adopt additional rules, right? I mean, it, ta it takes time, it takes effort, et cetera. By switching it and saying, from this point forward, anything that's listed as threatened does not have the same prohibitions unless there's an additional 4D rule, we believe would put many species at further risk. And we believe that the tendency of the agency now is it's, it's, it's to lift a restriction, which is much harder than would the agency oppose additional restrictions. And we're thinking of things such as, you know, if, if the giraffe were to be listed as a threatened species, et cetera, if this new rule were in effect, there would be no prohibitions on interstate commerce or any imports or anything unless the agency imposed any, and they wouldn't because of trophy hunting. So it's, it's, for us it seems, and there are a number of other species as well, that we also feel that having something that grandfathers in everything that was listed before a certain point has this blanket 4D rule, everything listed after a certain point doesn't have it, creates enormous regulatory confusion and implementation confusion. So that's some of the reasons we think it's, it's not a benign suggestion. So in the spirit of uh, robust debate, uh, Joe, it's only fitting that you go next. Um, so on, on the special rule, the, the other thing, so I mentioned this a little bit before. So the blanket rule really is, all that means is, is that you have the, that, that big, broad, no harm, harass, take, injure, trade, export, the, the, the basic take definition. Um, within the, with respect to threatened species, the, the assumption is, is that they, the statute did provide for under Section 40, which is that reference, it provided that it was that you may extend take prohibitions to the threat. So it's always assumed that you have a different level of protection. Back in 73, they really were trying to say, we understand that threatened species have, are slightly better health than endangered. We don't believe you automatically apply the take prohibitions to the species. Um, for if they're threatened, you should, you may adopt a 4D rule to apply take. So that's, that's what the statute did. The, the 88, 89 regulation really, as I said, it, it just assumed the blanket rule. What, and I, I kind of go back to my kind of mantra, Fish and Wildlife Service needs to do its job. Um, I think there are a lot of in, innovative ways they can do it without, number one, there's nothing stopping them from, when they list a species, issuing a special 4D rule that says all of the take prohibitions apply and explain why. They have to give guidance as part of their listing rule of so what activities would be potential take to the species, regardless of whether it's a threatened or endangered species. So they have to do the analysis anyway. They can identify it in those situations. They actually, I think they can develop programmatic rules. They could come in um, and say, uh, for all foreign species of, of XYZ, we are doing a programmatic special 4D rule for these classification of species. So I think that's, that's why I think, one, I actually think the services, if they think about it, it's a good deal for them. It's something that they should be doing. And um, they can, if they're innovative, they will do it right and they will put it together. The backside is, and, and what is concerning is, is people then get a challenge and it will be litigation. And they're absolutely, if special 4D rules 
have not been challenged very often in the courts. Um, and probably the one that, I'm not even sure it got challenged, it, uh, probably the one that people know most about right now is the Northern Long-Eared Bat 4D rule that the Obama administration put out uh, because the bats were 13 states, pretty much affected everywhere because bats roost in pretty much any type of tree they can find that, that kind of has the basic characteristics. So it was a real problem when they, once they listed, they realized they couldn't just go with a section, that, that broad rule because it was going to gum up uh, just too many uh, activities. Tree main, the best example is uh, for elect my world, uh, electric utility lines, have to, you have to clear those lines or you have the fires that happen in California, right? So it's really, really important to keep a, a 200, 150-foot right-of-way down along these, these high-voltage transmission lines or you will have fires. And so that's, that's not a kind of sort of we may need to do it. It's absolutely they have to clear those areas. Bats roost in those trees, and for them, maintenance of those trees is a really big concern. And so having that 4D rule was very important for the electric utility industry because they needed to have routine maintenance activities go on, and they couldn't just stop those because they'd be in that situation of, I'm either violating one law or another uh, because they're obligated by another set of federal rules and statutes to maintain their right-of-ways and to clear trees. So. That's, that's a good example of why, you know, there are reasons why you do a special 4D rule. And I think that, um, and I understand it is a concern to say we aren't going to just have that, that initial protection. What I, my view though is, is that just means there's more advocacy opportunities to come in and say what should happen. And this is also, I'll kind of segue a little bit, which is a, something I want to talk about. I think the ESA really is at a point where there's going to be what I prefer to as kind of modernization of permitting guidance and conservation. We have so much more data out there. GIS mapping, modeling is so much better. Data, we've, we've got much, you know, we've got 40, 50 years of data now on some of these species. We have a lot more information than we did back in the 70s and 80s. The statute hasn't caught up to that, and the regulations haven't caught up to that. Uh, 4D rules is one way to catch up and really make use of the input that you have. Special 4D rules really do have the ability to make up that input, really look at modeling, forecasting, and understanding the, the environment. Uh, and I think from the perspective of climate change, when you think about that, that's, that's another reason to, to, to think about this because if you modernize and you really take the tools there, the services have the authorities. ESA is still a very broad statute. And it, it, it is not easy to navigate from the permitting and the, the land use natural resource side. People have to, it's, they have to think about what they're doing. It's not just, you know, build a new road anymore. They, they really do look, they map. Every project I go through now, we have tons of, we have GIS mapping from local, state, federal databases that get built, takes three, four months to build. So we're using all this mapping to, to know where the species are, know where the habitat may be, know what habitat conditions, modeling. We have all that. It partially has been driven by NEPA, partially been driven by own, uh, just the access to the data uh, because the last thing somebody wants to do when they're permitting, developing a project is have it get killed two months after sinking a lot of money into a project. So it doesn't make sense from their perspective not to do it either. So that's one thing that, uh, why I, kind of my defensive I like 4D rules. I think they have a lot of purpose. I wish the services would use them more. 
Thanks, Joe. So there's, in, in the interest of time, there, there was something I wanted to piggyback off of for uh, an opportunity for, for, for Danny to come back on a, a point that's relevant to the, uh, the Dusky Gopher Frog case, and that is this proposed reduction of interagency consultation under seven, uh, Section 7 of the ESA and, and, and this, the, the potential effect of that uh, related to climate change would, would uh, potentially exclude from the consultation requirement any agency action that is likely to exacerbate climate change. And so I know in Danny's remarks there was that sense of potentially climate change related drought would justify this need to designate unoccupied habitat and climate change is all around us. It's being embraced by other environmental statutes as something that we must consider. NEPA is, is getting more and more uh, involved with consideration of projects and their impacts on climate change. So uh, the ESA being grounded in the precautionary principle as it is, um, what better way than to retool the, the Endangered Species Act in a way that considers climate change appropriately because climate change is such a stark threat to species viability. Dan? <laughs> well, I, I think Joe put it um, sort of nicely, I, I think in his first remarks, in talking about how complicated <laughs> um, regulating uh, in light of the in light of climate change uh, is I mean the, the the polar bear litigation that's gone up and down with the Ninth Circuit and I think other circuits as well has uh, hasn't really led to any sort of clarity um, but I I'm sorry I don't know how to answer how to answer the question is can I well, comment on it? Please. Because it seems to me, I mean, there's a lot of good modeling now in terms of species and where they are now, and I'm thinking globally, not just in the U.S., and based on all the climate models, where they'll be. So I think from the perspective of critical habitat, it is short-sighted not to include that modeling and look where species, where threatened or endangered species may be in terms of what we call climate refugia in the, in the near term. I don't trust this administration to do that, I'm sorry, but I think it's a, a completely valid approach to critical habitat and agencies and, and consultation, et cetera, to look at where the species, not where the species is now, but where the species may be or will that particular habitat even persist? There's been a lot of new work. We've been involved in the science of looking at all the coral reefs of the world and which will be there in, in 20 years and which will not. Yeah. Where would you put your resources? The one you know will be gone or the one that has a chance of surviving? But then if, there, if, a gover if our government is managing something on a coral reef as well, it's not only what is the status of that coral reef now, but wh what will the status be in 20, 30 years? So I think it is appropriate to consider. I'm just not sure it's going to happen for a couple of years. Very, very well said. So uh, we are at the point where we can now entertain audience questions for about 25 minutes. Uh, so uh, when you state your question, I will restate it for, for the recording, and then uh, you can certainly direct it to the entire panel or, or one of the panelists. So uh, questions? Start with Mickey.
I should have brought mine. Yeah. The question is, uh, I just, someone had mentioned giraffes, and I know that there's a petition to list giraffes uh, uh, as endangered species, and um, Fish and Wildlife has failed to respond in the time that they were supposed to have, and it's just gone on and on, and they're really just not responsive at all. And I wondered what the status, I think there was actually a case, maybe this, someone actually initiated a proceeding to try to get the res them to respond. Um, I just wonder, what is the status of the I don't no go ahead let someone me probably that. knows I let, can let, tell let you what's going that. on in CITES though yeah let, oh, let, let me just first restate the question um, so the, the the initial comment was that the, uh, the the animal law committee of the city bar has uh, uh, released a, a, a peti uh, its position on the proposed regulations and uh, and it's uh, <coughs> opposing all of those uh, proposed regulations and then the question uh, was there is a petition to list giraffes and, and an inquiry about the status of that regarding uh, Fish and Wildlife's response to that. I don't know the status. I know they have not made a dis decision. I mean, I know they've actually internally not made a decision, but they haven't issued anything. But I think what's relevant is there's a proposal before CITES, um, that's the, the meeting, the conference of the parties is meeting in two months, to list the giraffe on Appendix 2. Right now, there's no international regulation in trade in giraffes. No permit is needed. Do you want to import a trophy of giraffe? In, in New York, you can find giraffe skin, giraffe skin products imported mostly from South Africa, but there's some concerns they don't all come from giraffes from South Africa. So we'll, we'll know when we get to that meeting in, in Sri Lanka in May. The U.S. has not stated a position, and I do not know if the U.S. will support it because there's heavy pressure on them to oppose it. Yes. But the U.S. may consider supporting it because then they can say the Endangered Species Act petition is, is warranted but precluded by international action. So I don't know what their position, they don't know what their position. Any other comments? We'll just yeah. add. That we support it, sorry. Yeah. Dr. Lieberman was saying earlier, if this is listed as, if the drafts are listed as threatened and for new 4D rule comes into place, not, not only the, the interstate commerce and um, import, trophy import issues um, would be a concern, but also the work that Asher and I do, uh, it's likely that threatened I mean, like threatened drafts would not be protected from the take prohibition at zoos. And so all the awful stuff that Asher was talking about uh, applying to big cats, if, if something like that happened with the giraffe, there would be no ESA protections even if the draft was listed. Any other comments before we take the next one? Uh, I have a question, actually, with respect to CITES and the ability on poaching. So poaching is a huge problem in Africa. And it's poaching, poaching in a lot of places, one yeah. Of, one of places, but uh, in my, one of the problems that is known is that China has got its belts and roads initiative, which is, uh, in many cases, I think people suspect or know that a lot of the poaching and some of the problems that come at, come from China on poaching is associated with that Belts and Roads initiative. Does CITES have, is there anything within CITES that really can be levered, leveraged with respect to kind of international governmental cooperation on those type of issues? Because I, I know, for example, you know, some of the CITES countries, a couple of, I can't remember, one, uh, one of the, countries just last week announced that they were going to join the, the 
China Belt and Roads Initiative, Italy. Italy. And Italy so did join, is, yeah. So I guess the question is, is well, does CITES have the ability to leverage, leverage anything with respect to poaching uh, and international kind of negotiations on those issues? CITES has ability to deal with international trade issues. There is a lot of increased illegal trade into China for a lot of reasons, not only the Belt and Road Initiative, but increasing Chinese investment in Africa and South America we're, we're seeing as well. We're seeing increase in Jaguar poaching and illegal trade in Jaguar teeth to China as there's increased Chinese investment in Chinese workers and road building, et cetera, in South America. I think that goes beyond Belt and, the Belt and Road Initiative, but CITES doesn't have any ability to deal with the internal decisions of countries on where they build their roads, et cetera, and things like that. I think that's more the Convention on Biological Diversity has an ability, and they're deciding on all their new targets next year, and there's an ability to deal with that. But since the meeting where it's all going to be decided is in China, we shall see. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Other questions from the audience? Oh, oh. There's another person. Back here. Actually, let me take this. Uh, so me, I, I know PLF. Hang on, let me restate yeah. that question yeah. first. So, uh, so uh, just, the, the, the question yeah. was uh, that the Pacific uh, Legal Defense Fund was was mentioned. Um, foundation. Oh, sorry, foundation, foundation um, was was mentioned uh, by one of the panelists as uh, an organization that was involved, I believe, in the Dusky yeah. Gopher Frog case. And yeah. the question was, are uh, they were also involved in the downgrading of the manatee status, and are they a, a hired gun for this? this kind of mischief. <laughs> uh, yeah, so PLF is a foundation. It's a, I believe it's a nonprofit. Um, they, they litigate on behalf mostly of landowners, uh, and they are very strong in kind of the private property rights field of, of the folks. Um, they were ac actually representing what's called the Markle family in this case. Weyerhaeuser had a different counsel. Um, and so, so they came in, they, they oftentimes for their Endangered Species Act issues, they really focus in on kind of much more conservative principle constitutional issues. They often take up the takings claims issues and interstate commerce issues. Uh, none of the PLF case, so PLF, it had its own litigation. There's actually two lawsuits, there was Weyerhaeuser and PLF, Pacific Legal Foundation, they filed separate lawsuits. The Pacific Legal Foundation case didn't get to the Supreme Court. The Weyerhaeuser case did, and if, you, if for lawyers, the Weyerhaeuser cert petition is a master class in how you get a case to the Supreme Court. <laughs> they picked two discrete issues. PLF came in with this huge, the same arguments they've been raising with the Supreme Court for the last 15 years. Uh, they, so they're, they're, I, they're known, they have a kind of very set conservative viewpoint, um, and they do litigate. They're, they're kind of the equivalent of Center for Biological Diversity is the, the, probably the most litigious on the on the environmental side. PLF is the most litigious on the on the private property rights kind of resource side. But um, if I would commend the Weyerhaeuser cert uh, petition. Who uh, Well, it was uh, Tim. Uh, he's out of Chicago. He also did the Wodex cases. 
but essentially they, they picked up two very discrete issues, knew what they were looking, and they, the second one, the challenge to the uh, economic impact, or the, the decision not to designate, they picked it up because of the Sackett EPA cases. If you know the Supreme Court had ruled in a couple different cases about how jurisdictional determinations should be challenged, should be able to challenge those. They picked up that line, they knew the court wanted to, would, likes that line of thinking, and so they specifically added that. The other piece is, is habitability, which was the other one, didn't show up in any of the cases until it all was laid out in a dissent to the en banc decision in Fifth Circuit. <laughs> so this, it's a fascinating case to see how those two issues came up to the Supreme Court and how one litigator, the warehouser's folks, picked up on that dissent and picked up on the Sackett cases and said, this, these are our two issues. It's a really great cert petition to look at. No, no, Other just stretching. comments, Danny or Okay, another question. Yes. I have a question regarding Lolita, the whale. Mm -hmm. This is for Asher or anybody else who may know. It, unfortunately, the 11th Circuit did not feel the need to, to give her a different environment. But is there anything that's being done so that she's at least put into, I would say, a larger pool or, or whatever they call her living environment, one without harassment? I mean, I love dolphins, but if the dolphins are harassing her, or maybe put her some other cetacean in that she could befriend that wouldn't harass her? So the, uh, the question was referring to the, the Lolita case uh, and uh, noting that the 11th Circuit did didn't feel the need to provide Lolita with a better in living environment, and the, the question was, are there any efforts to, to provide a, a more um, enriched uh, living environment for Lolita? So in terms of whether Miami Sequaria yes. is, is interested in, in helping Lolita and giving her better conditions, the answer to that is basically no. Uh, Peter's efforts on behalf of Lolita are in done. Uh, obviously, we appealed the decision we got as, as far as we could. Uh, we're trying other avenues. So the company that that purchased Miami Seaquarium had to apply for a new Animal Welfare Act license. So we we Are filed there stipulations at least that just have a better <laughs> environment. I mean, we're trying. Basically, we. we we filed a lawsuit against uh, automatically issuing a license to the new purchases, purchasers of Miami Seaquarium. I mean, we'll see what happens there. It, I mean, it's not all bad under uh, new USDA regulations. There are new uh, proposed rulemakings around the licensing process for USDA exhibitors. Uh, there's a lot that we don't like in the new proposed rules predictably, uh, something that might be slightly better than the status quo is that there's a, they're trying to create a process by which the USDA won't just rubber stamp license renewals. And if each time a license is up for renewal, the USDA will actually look at an Animal Welfare Act record. We hope that would help. Even if it doesn't help Lolita, it could hopefully help other animals. Yes. Um, I was just wondering, um, you're dealing with, I mean, I can't imagine being in a position and dealing with these people. Um, I don't know anything about law. <laughs> um, but you're dealing with terrorists and abusers for many, many, many hundreds of 
So, so the question was, you're, you're dealing with terrorists and abusers in this, in this animal uh, welfare context, and is there anything that, that the public can do to, to assist the effort? Sure. I mean, it's funny that you use the word terrorists because they quite often call us terrorists. Mm -hmm. Repeatedly. In papers they file with federal That's courts. It's very, <laughs> it's very interesting. But um, I, I mean, I think you hit on a good point. I mean, something that's so interesting about prosecuting, again, uh, prosecuting cases against roadside zoos is that people who abuse animals, as I'm sure I don't need to convince anyone here, are not terribly good people. Uh, Randy Stearns, who's one of the managers at DCWT, was recently arrested for in indecent exposure to minors. Um, the former owner of the roadside zoo that took the animals that DCWT tried to spoliate is currently on trial for, um, for murder for hire in Oklahoma. So you really deal with all kinds of, of people. They're not good, and what's kind of rewarding about the ESA citizen supervision is that you're kind of stepping in the shoes of a private attorney general and trying to make sure that their actions have consequences. In terms of what people can do, I think there's actually a lot, and I think just spreading the word is a big part of it. I, I don't know how often you talk to other people about roadside zoos, but it's a bit like the cliche about people's congressmen, people don't like roadside zoos, but they tend to think of their local zoo as their local zoo. And it could be a difficult message to get across because these places tend to advertise as rescues, not as roadside zoos. For example, uh, Tim Stark Zoo in Indiana is wildlife in need and wildlife indeed. Uh, he has an Indiana wildlife rehabilitator's license. That kind of advertising is very common, trying to make the public think that, especially the public who won't be looking for the right kind of accreditations, that they're the good guys. The animal rights people are taking it too far. They're misguided. They actually hate animals. I just add, um Asher points out that the ESA has a citizen supervision where you're a private, attorney's gen a private attorney general. So that's definitely what the public is for, right? It's not like we can just dream up, oh, we, you know, we've heard about this bad, bad place and just go off and sue them on our own. It has to be through people who visited and ha have concerns with, uh, with, where, with the abuse that they've witnessed. So um, if you ever, you know, do witness anything, you should reach out to PETA and Animal Legal Defense Fund and everybody else here. Um, and actually, uh, um, on our website, we have forms for like a roadside zoo checklist where you could um, sort of see what types of um, health concerns to look, look out for. Other questions? Yes, back there.
So, so the question was, uh, are, are the states giving any pushback on these harmful provisions by those you mean the proposed regulations? Okay. Um, well, one point that we didn't get to that's relevant to that point is the, uh, the reality that states are getting in, enlarged roles in, in a lot of this, and that's not necessarily good for the protection of the species. So uh, the ESA is, is a, um, a, a different statute that way than a lot of the cooperative federalism models that we see under the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, where it's very much of a federal standard implemented by the state foot soldiers. In, in the ESA, when you've got an, an enlarged state participation uh, in that process, it is often um, less friendly to the protection objectives of those species. But I'll, I'll let depends on the state. Oh well, you know, if we're in California, you know. <laughs> no, there is tremendous variability among the states. So yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's a fair point. I, I was making an overly general point. Sure. Yeah. Other other. Uh, Joe, did you want to come uh, with that? There's, there's a coalition of states, about 16 states, California, New York, uh, uh, mostly eastern seaboard and uh, Illinois and a couple others that have bound together and they've filed substantive comments on all those, the notice of proposed rules and they're actually pretty active in the federal regulatory world uh, at, at the local agency level too. So there's, there's a group of some states that have been. Uh, there's obviously, uh, you know, each of the governors from, from that perspective, the Western Governors is very active on uh, Endangered Species Act issues. They, that's a coalition of, you know, it's re Republican Democrats, about 50-50 Democrat and, and Republican Governors. They work on consensus, so they don't get in, they, they try to focus in on state management of endangered species and some of those issues, uh, which it's kind of where you get in, that's the, the soft spot. When you start getting into state hunting issues is when you start getting, seeing the differences. Danny or Asher, anything on that point? So, so another thing that I would mention on that, on the state role, is um, under the Animal Welfare Act, there, there's not very high levels of protection when we talk about the use of animals in, in uh, medical research. And there was a case that involved a, an effort for the state to do more, uh, to impose additional animal cruelty requirements on how the animals were, were um, handled in the medical research uh, facilities and, and that uh, the court determined that the, the federal standard preempted those additional state efforts to do, to do good by the, the animals, that they, they were not allowed to impose those additional anti-cruelty protections on top of that minimum level of protection that the Animal Welfare Act uh, provides. Uh, yes. So, so the question was: There was a rash of states seeking to to ban ivory recently, and do you see that uh, continuing? Yeah, there were a large number of states, including New York, of course, that did that, and that was before the federal government uh, put in put in effect the rule banning. And part of that was to put pressure on the federal government. But in my experience, because I I work more internationally than in the U.S. When I met with the Chinese government, they said, so what's the status of the Hawaii law? We haven't heard yet. And what are the, they followed it incredibly closely. And that had a big influence on the, China has now totally closed its ivory market. I was there in December. I mean, there are no shops with ivory. There's still problems with enforcement. So I don't, 
I think it was extremely, and there was a big campaign, and we were involved with it as well, of course, in getting that moving. There are still some states looking beyond that. There is an effort in New York State, I know now, looking at other endangered species, including the giraffe, um, or potentially endangered or species that are we know are threatened under IUCN. A number of states are looking at uh, restrictions on shark fins, etc. So I think that's sort of continuing in situations where there's not a federal action. It probably will. It probably because people are motivated, having done these ivory bands, these elephant ivory bands. I think you'll see some of that continuing. But because of the federal action on the elephant ivory, there's really no need for states to be more restrictive. But some are still looking at it, and in my opinion, it's totally fine. But I think we'll we'll still see more of that. Time for uh, one more question. I'll Anyone who hasn't asked a question want to ask a question? Otherwise, we can go. Well, can I just add oh, sure. an answer to that? There are also, you know, states have baby endangered species acts. Um, they have what? Baby endangered species acts, or I don't know if that's the appropriate way to say it, but their own endangered species acts. Um, and uh, a case that new case that I'm working on right now uh, has both federal endangered species act claims and uh, violations of the state endangered species act, which go are arguably broader than the Federal Endangered Species Act, so they, um, so the animals that are covered by the State Endangered Species Act, the roadside zoo cannot even possess them, um, just sort of a blanket ban on possession that the federal ESA doesn't touch. But can you get a better dis uh, disclosure through state sunshine laws or state public information? Yes, I mean, that, that there may be more records available under state sunshine laws. Um, it depends on the state, right? And also the enforcement also depends on the state. You may have a fish and wildlife department that is happy to work with you or doesn't want you anywhere near. Yes, here. Yes, go ahead. Just in context with the removal of the blanket rule and the potential for having there being more scrutiny then of the petitions that come in, is there a sense of how many petitions annually are filed for listing threatened or endangered species? Uh, so the question was, with, in, in regard to the removal of the blanket rule, is there any uh, indication of how many petitions are, are filed per year? You may know. I don't know the number. Yeah, I've, quite I, a few. I don't know. There are quite a few. I will say that this administration is very, very slow in responding to listing petitions. It shouldn't surprise you. Uh, that's, uh, the, there's going to, I think there's probably a couple deadline uh, petitions. They have a timeline they're supposed to answer petitions. Uh, they're they're kind of bumping up on some of the deadlines. I expect to see some lawsuits pretty soon on a couple uh, listing significant listing position petitions. But usually, I think it's probably about ten, to, somewhere between ten and forty a year. And then you some kind of get some big gulp petitions like Center for Biological Diversity. You know, filed one for four hundred and four aquatic species in the southeast back in two thousand eight or two thousand a while ago. And some of those are still working their way through the system. Fish and Wildlife Service has a big backlog. I mean, they actually, if you've never seen it, they rank the level, the number of petitions that they have. They list them. There's a process you can see on the website, which which all the, the listing petitions and kind of progress. So you, you can actually track those pretty well these days. And uh, to be fair, they are constrained by resources. Yeah. They, they, sometimes it's just slow because there's so many, they just, their budgets are not exactly increasing to do that. And the budget request from the administration does not give them an increase to do a better job of processing those permits. But was that the reason I think you gave that they had actually put in the blanket rule? Because 
Uh, back in the 80, in 88-89, yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of in that spot where they found they were trying to streamline what they were having to, to put together in budget, and they viewed that as a <coughs> quick fix to something to kind of reduce their workload. But that was 88-89. You know, Things have changed. Okay, we are, we are out of time. Please join me in thanking our panelists. Thank you again thank to you. the Animal Law Committee and the Environmental Law Section for and sponsoring. Thank you, and you'll make your train. <laughs> <laughs>